In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest for this episode is a man with a few very interesting personal stories to share. Relationship coach Harry Addo. Hello, Harry. Welcome to my podcast series. How are you? I'm good, Nigel, and, you know, really happy to be here. Excited for our conversation. I understand you live in Ireland. Whereabouts in Ireland do you live? So I actually shuttle between two locations. So I spend some time in, you know, South Dublin. And right now I'm speaking from Kildare, which is out in the country, sort of in the mid-central, sorry, east-central, east-central area. Um, but I, I do spend a lot of time in South Dublin as well. But for uh, for the quarantine, I'm spending it here in Kildare, out in the country with my family. So how long have you been living in Ireland? I've been living here since 2012. So I moved here when I was 17. So where were you living before that? So prior to moving here, I lived in Nigeria. And yeah, it was a very interesting upbringing, I, I suppose, you know, prior to that point. So I was based predominantly in Nigeria but we would like every Christmas or Easter or any chance we could really our grandparents so I I grew up with my grandparents they would sort of take us to England and we'd spend time in like Kent and spend some time in uh, Battersea, Croydon so like my my childhood was sort of characterized by that oscillation you know between Nigeria and the UK but sort of moved to Ireland permanently in 2012 when I turned 17. So what was it like growing up in Nigeria and what was the contrast between Nigeria and Ireland? Growing up in Nigeria it's like as you can imagine right it's a completely different world there we don't have say constant power supply Um, I think on the surface level of course the climate is completely different. I was in boarding school in Nigeria so we used to get beaten with like you know horse whip, canes, you know, on Saturdays we would have to wake up and uh, we'd be given machetes and we'd have to go into into the moat. So I was in this school, a boarding school that was built on the edge of a moat. And over time, the moat had sort of become overrun with vegetation. So on Saturday mornings, we would have to get into a line and, you know, one of the older students would give us each a machete and we'd have our flip-flops on and we'd have to go into the moat to quote-unquote cut grass and it was just really the premise behind it was this is a way to instill discipline into us right right so that was the idea behind that so it was very very interesting to say the least I mean I was lucky in the sense I I mean I'm not trying to make it seem like I had it bad or anything as a matter of fact I was quite fortunate but through my experience of secondary school I managed to experience shared hardship if that makes sense because it was me and the people around me so yeah i mean that that's what nigeria was like it was very chaotic but very beautiful at the same time it really really shaped my my view on myself you know i i I learned a lot about myself in nigeria and in spite of the the chaos and the elements of society that you know i don't necessarily agree with and that i think are behind in the developmental sense But in terms of the essence of the people, you know, the people around me, the people that I saw, you know, there's a certain resilience that Nigerians have. You know, you see people who don't have nearly as much as, say, people that I, you know, interact with here in Ireland, but they seem to 
I mean, by no choice of their own, but they live life with a certain simplicity. And on account of that, you know, there is a there is a very there is a glaring sense of appreciation for the things that, you know, they do have. Well, your experience of growing up in Nigeria sounds interesting, to say the least. Do you think that experience Mm. changed you fundamentally as a person? Oh, yeah, 100 percent, 100 percent, because, you know, when you're living in that environment, you start to really you learn about expectation setting you know you for me it taught me not to have expectations on others or not to place them on others right and also to be adaptable right anything could happen at any time so you develop a sensitivity for your surroundings and you know one of the most powerful experiences that i ever had i mean if you ask me to tell you about the top five moments in my life a lot of them happened in nigeria but there was this one event in particular that changed my life you know and um so it definitely has influenced and affected who i am and how i view myself and what was that experience right so I mean, I've already sort of given you a glimpse, right, (laughs) an overview of what I experienced in secondary school. But, you know, one, there was this one thing that happened to me at uh, age 11. And, you know, it ended up being, it was a negative thing at the time, you know, was a horrible experience, but it ended up being a catalyst for major growth. So the reason I like to speak about this is I like to show people that I know that a lot of people have experienced this particular thing. And it can be hard to, you know, pick yourself up and move on beyond that pain. And, and, and I know this firsthand, but I was able to I was able to consolidate and regroup and, you know, make a way forward. So to cut a long story short, I was in I was in an all boys boarding school, one out of I was in about four different boarding schools. You know, I was I was quite the uh, quite the quite the child, you know, very, very mischievous. <laughs> so I moved around a lot. But um. I got sexually abused, right? I got molested in, in an all-boys boarding school at age 11. So as you can imagine, when that happens to you at such a young age, it completely alters the way that you, A, think of yourself, but also the way that you start to perceive your environment, right? There is a sense of insecurity and, you know, a, a distrust for authority, etc., etc. As a matter of fact, for about three to six months after it happened, the, the best way I can describe it is it, it felt like I was in this transient sort of state. You know what I mean? It, it didn't, life didn't quite feel real to me. You know, I was sort of just living. I was just living. And I stopped showering. I stopped, you know, uh, washing my clothes because I felt quite honest. You know, I felt filthy. You know, I felt like I'd been completely violated. And um, one thing that, you know, really sticks out in my mind is I would get this itching sensation you know, on my skin, on my forearm. And, you know, there was obviously no actual, like, physical itch, but it was a psychological thing. You know, I I would constantly, like, be scratching, running my nails across my forearm. And, and, you know, that was sort of one of the byproducts of the pain that I went through, the traumatic experience that I I had to go through, you know, as an 11-year-old child. But, you know, one day, there was this one day where everything changed. So I'm in this Catholic school, Catholic all-boys school, and we had to go to mass. We had mass about two times a day, right? We either had mass in the, e- so mass in the morning, 100%, and in the evening, we either had mass or we had to go to the chapel to say the rosary. Now, um, we would go to the chapel for, you know, evening 
prayers or mass after our siesta, so nap time. So I remember, you know, we, the head prefect of the school sort of, he rings the bell, you know, so this, it's time now to go to the chapel. And all my, you know, all my peers, they sort of rush off, but I'm still in this transient state. I'm still, nothing felt real. I was very dejected. And also I felt like I couldn't share because the, my, my abuser, if you want to use that word, was an older student, much, much older than I was. And there was this sort of fear, fear-based culture within the school system, you know, between students. So I knew that, first of all, if I take this to any of the teachers, you know, they don't want this scandal. So I would end up being on the losing end of things. And then I'd have to face the wrath of this guy and his, and, and his peers. So... For that reason, I kept it to myself. And also, um, at the time in Nigeria, it's quite a quite a homophobic society. So even though I was on the receiving end of that, you know, situation, because I was aware of that, you know, that that closed-mindedness when it came to particular things, I knew that even though I was on the receiving end, there was a possibility that I would get blamed for what happened to me. You know what I mean? So I I knew. That well, telling <laughs> telling someone is off off the cards. So I have to deal with this on my own. Anyway, back to this day, and you know the, the prefect ringing the bell and us having to move on to the chapel. But as I'm walking from the dorms through to the chapel, there's this corridor, you know, and I remember sort of this was what I I consider to be my first spiritual experience, where I'm walking and all of a sudden my chest feels really heavy, you know, and I'm. All of a sudden, it's like I can't, I can't, I'm gasping for air, you know. So I lean against the wall and I had this, like, a vision, let's call it that. Right? And I saw this image. There was no sound. Um, there weren't multiple characters, but there was this one man. And this man looked like he had been beaten into submission by life. It was truly a horrible, it was a horrible image. And, you know, what was communicated to me in that moment was, you know, if you continue like this, if you continue on in the way that you're living now, this is this is going to be you. And and it was a very visceral feeling. I understood what was being communicated, even though there were no sounds, no other characters. It was just this image of this man. And it was such a it was a horrible sight. So I don't know how long that actually lasted, but I remember sort of recovering from this state and, you know, I realized, oh, I have to get to the chapel. Then I'm thinking on my way to the chapel, okay, I don't want to be that guy that I saw. You know, I don't want to be that guy that I saw. So I made a conscious decision that day that I wasn't going to let what happened define me. Now, the way that I processed it at the time was I told myself, listen, I'm a I'm a I'm a weak child. I'm a weak child, which is why this has happened to me. But I promised myself that I would never be in such a position again. And I will not be a weak man. I asked myself, well, how can I ensure that this sort of thing doesn't happen to me again? And I, I realized that I would need to do two things. And that would be A, to fortify my mind. And B, to fortify my body and that has essentially informed the way that I've lived my life since then. I became very curious about people, about behavior, very observant and hyper vigilant about people around me. I became very charismatic and, you know, 
over time, I would become very heavily invested in fitness. And today, you know, I'm a martial artist, so I train in Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Um, but, you know, the, the most important thing for me was at, at a young age, understanding that, you know, I have the capacity to overcome adversity and that I didn't have to be defined by a negative, a very negative traumatic experience. You know, not to say there haven't been, there have been dark moments, moments where I feel the pain, moments where it has overwhelmed me. But when I look at things sort of through a broad lens, that, that was a very positive, positive, positive experience for me because it showed me the, it, it, it showed me the level of wickedness that the human soul can manifest. But it also showed me the strength within myself that without having experienced something like that, I may not have been acquainted. I may not have become acquainted with that side of myself and certainly not at such a young age. So it made me very, very, very self-aware moving forward. And I became a very confident person, but my confidence came from the knowledge that I could go to that dark place. And I know, I know that I can come through the fire. I can go through the abyss and, 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 and keep moving forward. So yeah, that definitely, that was a, very very significant moment in my life and i can honestly say that right now i'm truly grateful that i had that experience at such a young age thank you for sharing that harry so you're a relationship coach what inspired you to become a relationship coach i mentioned to you earlier that i was raised by my grandparents and the reason for that was my mom and dad they they had a divorce when i was about i think i was about five six years old so because of that, there were numerous battles with regards to who would, who would stay with who, et cetera, et cetera. And it got pretty nasty. And they basically ended up going their separate ways. And there was a very nasty custody battle that ensued following, you know, following that situation. And it got me very interested in relationships and interested in, you know, what is it that makes a relationship tick and what is the effect that, a dysfunctional relationship can have on the whole network of people, which is basically what happened in my life. Years later, I get into this uh, relationship with a, with a girl who I believe to be the one, a girl who I love dearly and still have love for, right? You know, and, you know, always will out of respect for what we shared. But while I was in that relationship, we got together when I was 19 and we were together nearly five years, four and a half years. While I was in that relationship, I was determined to be the best partner that I could be, right? I didn't want what happened with my parents' relationship to take root in my life. So I wanted to do things differently. So I started to look into people like Esther Perel, um, Guy Winch, Tony Robbins. Um, another person that really helped me was Jordan Peterson to try and you know understand what it takes to make make a relationship work. Because I realized at a young age that love is not enough, and the mechanics the mechanics are very important, if not more important. Um, and that's essentially what deepened my interest it deepened my curiosity because it, the fire had already been lit all those years earlier all those years prior but then while I was in this relationship you know I'm I'm studying doing research and I'm I'm learning all these things and at around the same time I started reading books on coaching because I'd seen this Tony Robbins TED talk on I think it was how to be happy and it basically everything sort of became intertwined you know I'm learning about relationships I'm learning about coaching and I just started my undergrad degree in sociology so 
I'm deconstructing complex ideas. And then I started my master's in coaching. One day, this woman that I'd given everything to, this person that I thought was my soulmate, she left. Okay, she left. And not to not to paint her in a bad light, she's, I still have a lot of respect and admiration and love for her, you know, on account of everything that we've experienced. But I never expected that things would end the way that they did. Because my mindset is always... No matter what the challenges are, you know, you look at what you can control and you start to solve for those things as opposed to obsessing or stressing over things that are beyond your locus of control. So when she left, I was completely destroyed because to give you a bit of context, we had just moved into this very fancy apartment in South Dublin. And this was meant to be a natural projection uh, progression. You know, we were meant to be taking the next steps and we would eventually get married and have kids, yada, yada, yada. But when she left, not only did my bills double, right, because she left the apartment, but I was completely broken psychologically. And it got me into a very deep depression. You know, not only had I lost that physical companionship, but I'd also lost the imagined future that we shared together. And also my experiences, my memories of the past had now become distorted on account of the nastiness that took place during the end of the relationship. So I wasn't quite sure how I was going to get through this situation, but I did know that I'd been depressed before. I'd experienced depression before. The first experience I had of depression was, you know, after that incident at age 11. So one day, I remember sitting on my couch in darkness, just in pain. And a friend of mine sends me this quote by Picasso, and this quote basically ended up being the catalyst that would spark this change within me. And the quote is, every act of creation is first an act of destruction. And, you know, coupled with the quote, he had sent me a, a gif of the phoenix. And I, I resonate strongly and relate strongly and deeply to the phoenix, you know, burns itself in its own ashes in order to rise again. And that has been my story and my life experience up until this point. Um, so I decided in that moment, you know, after reading those words, it gave my spirit a jolt and I decided that, you know what, I've been here before, you know, my whole life began to play out in front of my eyes and I started to, I was back in Nigeria, you know, I was back in boarding school, you know, being beaten with horsewhip and back in that moment that I, that I shared with you earlier, you know, back in that environment, back in that state of mind where, um, I was really sad and, you know, downright depressed again when my parents split up. You know, all these all these things that had sort of happened over the course of my life. And I realized, well, the one commonality here is pain. You know, I'm no stranger to pain. I've been in pain before. Depersonalize what I'm experiencing. And it wasn't like this happened, you know, all at once. It took time. It took time. But I, I decided that I was going to transcend the pain. I knew the pain. There was no way I was going to get rid of it. I was deeply in love with this woman. And, you know, this was the situation. This wasn't something I planned. So bit by bit, I started to redefine my view on myself. I realized my self-esteem was destroyed. So I started looking into self-esteem. You know, I came across this gentleman called Nathaniel Brandon. He was a, um, he was a clinical psychologist and he wrote a book called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. So I read that book and I looked into some more of his work and you know, I really leaned to Jordan Peterson and I decided in that moment that, you know what, all this 
information and all this, you know, sort of studying I've been doing over the course of the relationship. Let me look at all this material through a different lens and let me see if it will give me any insight into what I'm currently experiencing and how that will allow me to move forward. So I did just that and I became obsessed with not only healing myself, but I started looking around and I realized, you know, our relational lives, when it comes to our emotional education, we are expected, you know, by society at large to go out there and figure this stuff out. You know, we go to, we spend a lot of time in secondary school, a lot of time in college, you know, whether it's an undergrad or, you know, you want to get a postgraduate qualification or whatever other certifications or qualifications you want to do. There's, there's, there's something out there for you. But when it comes to our emotional lives, we're meant to just, you know, wing it. You're meant to know this stuff intuitively. And as a consequence of that, we, we, we make mistakes. And when we turn to people around us, they themselves haven't necessarily done the work to they give us half-baked advice and then we act on that half-baked half-baked advice and that essentially leads us to more struggle and more suffering so i decided that you know what i'm going to not only help myself but i'm going to then help other people because i could see that <laughs> i'm not the only one who's experienced this pain i started speaking to my dad my mom my uncles my my my, my colleagues my um cousins strangers people who worked with me at the gym and i realized hold on a second like people are in a lot of pain when it comes to their romantic lives and they really don't know how to move forward you know and that was how my journey as a relationship coach i wouldn't say that's when it was born it was born all those years prior but that was when it transitioned into what it now is you know today so what type of people approach you for your services so it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's a mixture of people. I have uh, people who are college students, people who are doing their masters. I have people who are, you know, software engineers, accountants, doctors, basically anyone who is trying to better themselves and deepen their understandings of the, you know, the psychodynamics of their relational lives. So basically people who have who are asking questions such as, you know, what can I do? to make my current relationship better. You know, we're in a cycle of bickering and, um, you know, conflict. What can I do? You know, I want to improve. I, I, I hold my hand up. I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes, but I have this desire to do better in this relationship. Or people who, you know, I'm struggling with dating. I can get sex, but I can't find connection. Or can't get sex, you know, and I want to experience that, but I'm, I'm struggling to bring myself across to to show the value that i that i have or in some cases people don't necessarily they're not in tune with the value that inherent value that they have so it really is a wide ranging uh, spectrum of individuals who approach me which is which is beautiful from my perspective because with each client that i work with it's essentially a new project it's a new situation you know there is no one size fits all approach and then i have to go out and find relevant information right to help them move forward in you know in in their trajectory and you know in, in service to the goal that they've shared with me and it, it's a it's a powerful experience. And how can people contact you, Harry? So people can contact me on Facebook. I've got I've got my Facebook page. It's Harry Uda, Relationship Coach. So U-D-D-O-H. 
Alternatively, they can find me on Instagram, which is Harry underscore Uda, U-double-D-O-H. Or you can also reach me on my website, uh, harryuda.com. I have a contact form. Or you can send me an email, you know, me at harryuda.com. Very, very straightforward. I, I do endeavor to get back to everyone who reaches out. And the way I look at it is whether or not we end up working together in a, you know, sort of coach-to-client relationship, I do my best to serve. So even if we only end up speaking for 15, 20 minutes, I want you to have gained something, you know, from that conversation, whether it's something you've learned about yourself or something you've learned about my story that may help you moving forward or, you know, whatever the case may be. But I want you know, I want to impact people positively. Well, your story has certainly been interesting. Harry, thank you very much for your time. Very welcome. Lovely speaking with you, Nigel. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe.